Hey, welcome to Crosswalk Church. Today, Pastor Jeff is bringing you a teaching, so head over to crosswalkphoenix.com and find today's message under the worship tab. There you can download the Crosswalk notes to follow along. And now, here's Pastor Jeff. So we're talking about building a house of cards, or, or, or more, more accurately, we're talking about how to avoid building a house of cards in our family life. And what we're going to be talking about this morning is promises, which is really a timely topic, if you think about it. Because from the Bible, we know that what establishes a family is this aspect of making promises, making a commitment. That's, that's the thing that establishes a marriage, uh, that we make a lifelong commitment and promise to stay together with our spouse for life. So we're going to be diving into the, the whole question of promises because we live in a day and age where I think a lot of us are a little bit reluctant to make promises, And the reason for that reluctance is many of us have grown up around shattered promises, broken promises. We've we've watched our parents, many of us as children, maybe even stood at their side before an altar, watched them make promises to someone and, and, and hear that these promises, marriage promises are for a lifetime, only to see our parents break those promises a few years later, and this person that we thought was our dad is no longer our dad, may not be in our life anymore. This person we thought was our mom is no longer our mom, no, not in our life anymore. And so this really makes a lot of young people step back and think, it's just not authentic. It, it's just not really being a truth teller to even make a promise like this. But now it's also caused this this after effect of people, especially young people, really being shy about making promises. And and that's because I think a lot of, of, of people who are now in their 20s and 30s, especially in regards to marriage, have watched and experienced in their own life promises being broken. And maybe even some of you sitting here today have stood at the side of one parent and another, watched them take a marriage vow before God in church as a child and see that vow be broken multiple times. And now you're saying to yourself, I don't know about making a marriage promise. I've seen how that plays out, how long that lasts. Is it even worth it to, to do that? It's better to be authentic. It's better to just be honest and realize that as people, we probably, you know, it's the unique, it's the rare individual that's truly made and meant to make and keep a marriage promise. And I think this plays out to all kinds of promises in our life. So the questions that we want to answer today is, what promises should we be making, if any? And if we make a promise, how important is it for us to keep the promise and fulfill the commitment that we've made? What, what does God have to say about that? And then finally, and maybe this is the most important question we're going to answer today, is what about the marriage promise? 
Is it the same as any other marriage, any other promise or commitment that we might make? Or are there some unique aspects to a marriage promise that mean that we should take it either more or less seriously than we do other promises? Those are the questions we want to address this morning. And it's interesting because the Pharisees of Jesus' day were interested in answering those questions. And they came to Jesus. This is late in his ministry. He's been teaching in Galilee. And he goes across into what's known as the, the Transjordan, or it was known as Perea, which is from a, a Greek word which means the beyond, beyond the Jordan. And it's kind of a desert area. It's not a, a place where a lot of people live. But Jesus is out there, and he's teaching the people. And as we're going to see from these very first verses, because Jesus is there and because people know that Jesus has some amazing teaching, they follow him out there. And it's large crowds of people out in this beyond the Jordan area asking him questions. And in the midst of his teaching, uh, up come the Pharisees to ask their question. And we'll talk a little bit about them. But let's read the first verse, Matthew 19, 1 to 3. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan, to the, to the beyond. Large crowds followed him. And it wasn't just teaching he was doing, was it? Large crowds followed him, and, and Matthew tells us he healed them there. there. There was healing going on. Probably some of that was his words, they were being spiritually healed and emotionally healed. They, their ideas were changed. They were being rationally healed. But it's clear also that they were being physically healed. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So let's Let's take a look at what the Pharisees came to do. Do you see the verb that Matthew uses to describe what the Pharisees are doing here? What is that word? They came to what? Test him. So they have a hidden agenda. They're there to sort of put Jesus on trial, to check and see what he's going to say because in reality, the Pharisees don't like Jesus very much. They're hoping that they can trip him up. And there are various theories about this. One of them has to do with, with the fact that Jesus is in the beyond. He's in the Transjordan. And that was, uh, that was a place ruled uh, and, and a place under the authority of King Herod. And if you'll recall, King Herod had had some issues with with his marriage and had been confronted by John the Baptist about his marriage. And anybody remember what happened to John the Baptist after he confronted Herod? He lost his head, right? And that's what I'm hoping will not happen to me after this message this morning. <laughs> this is a touchy subject. And the Pharisees know it. So one of the theories is they're hoping they can kind of get rid of Jesus this way. Um, maybe he'll lose his head. Another theory is simply that 
the Pharisees being the Pharisees, they believed that one should follow Moses in the Old Testament, but they also felt that what the, what the rabbis had written to add on and clarify what, what was written in the Old Testament and, and many of the Jewish traditions that had been built up, that those were important, maybe almost for some Pharisees, to the same level as the scriptures themselves. And so they had all, all kinds of rules. So we'll talk about them in just a moment, just even in regard to their to their promises. There were only 6,000 Pharisees in Jesus' day, but the level of their influence went far beyond their numbers. Most of the, the regular Joes the, of the Jewish people really admired the Pharisees because the Pharisees were very good at outwardly demonstrating their piety. And you know, of course, that Jesus took issue with the Pharisees because in many cases, uh, he, he thought that they were and saw that they were, didn't just think that they were, saw that they were, they were hypocrites. That most of their piety was really nothing more than an outward show, but, but inside, they didn't really have the piety and the trust and the faith in God that God would have loved for them to have. And so he, he confronts them over and over again. So these are the people, and there, there have already been multiple back, back and forth with, with the Pharisees. And so they, they just don't like him very much. And yet, in the midst of Jesus' teaching and healing, even though he's in a place that's not all that easy to get to, the Pharisees come out and ask him a question. And here's the question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and ever, every reason? So before, before we see Jesus' answer to that question, let's write down some things that we've seen already. First of all, Jesus is a teacher and healer. He's our teacher and healer. And still today, large crowds want to know, what does Jesus have to say about this uh, many people look to Jesus for spiritual healing, rational and emotional, psychological healing, and, and also for physical healing. So Jesus is a teacher and healer. He was their teacher and healer. He's still our teacher and healer. And a couple of the things that he teaches us, and this is why even the Pharisees know they can put this question to Jesus, is he teaches us what promises he has made us. One of the things that makes marriage so difficult is that we are asking two sinful people, and always remember what, what our definition of sin is, the Bible's definition of sin is a human being turned back in on himself, meaning selfishness. Two sinful, selfish people being bonded together as one and, and commanded to live together for life, dealing with their selfishness and their sin every day. The only thing that makes this possible, really, is that it is not just two sinners being bonded together but two forgiven sinners being bonded together. 
And this is why it's so important for us to understand God's promises to us, Jesus' promises to us that go all the way back to the Garden of Eden where God, right after Adam and Eve, the first married couple, in their own selfishness, fell into sin by eating of the tree of knowledge of the knowledge of good and evil. God came into the garden and made a promise. I will send for you and your descendants someone to crush Satan's head. He will be your Messiah, your Savior. He will win forgiveness of sins for you. He will bring the Holy Spirit and his power to help you change your lives and get them more aligned with me and my will. He'll heal you of your selfishness and and make sure you know you have an identity in me as a dearly loved child of God, a destiny of eternal life, that you have a glorious purpose of serving and honoring me in this life, that, that, that you have amazing possibilities because with me, all things are possible. And I'll build around you a community of people to support you in your journey to heaven. All of those are aspects of the promises that God made going all the way back to the Garden of Eden and then kept remaking through the children of Israel all along until Jesus came and then reinforce them through the apostles. God wants us to know the promises he makes to us. They're vitally important because, especially in marriage, it takes two, and this is huge, forgiven sinners for marriage to work. Secondly, he teaches us what promises we ought to make and keep. You know, it's pretty interesting what Jesus says when asked about Swearing when teaching about swearing an oath. Do you know what Jesus says? It's really not necessary for you to swear an oath if you simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. In fact, he says, if you add to letting your yes be yes and your no be no, anything more than that is really of Satan. When you say yes... Consider it a commitment and fulfill that commitment. When you say no, consider it a commitment and fulfill that commitment. You don't have to raise your right hand. You don't have to swear on a stack of Bibles. You don't have to say, I promise or I'm really committed. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. He teaches us what promises we ought to make and keep. And then finally, and I want to make this point really, really plain. There's a lot of brokenness in our world. And I I shared with you uh, last week that I I come from a broken family. My parents divorced when I was in sixth grade. I know what it feels to be the survivor of a broken marriage. I know what that feels like. I know the hurt that it causes. I know the pain that remains, sometimes for a good long time, sometimes for a lifetime. And so I hope that despite the fact that today we're going to say some pretty blunt things that you will also hear loud and clear that God forgives all sin, that God loves all sinners, that God understands when things are rocky in your marriage, that God even forgives if your marriage, if you're sitting here today uh, surrounded by the shattered shards of, of, of former marriage, God loves you. And so it's important to hear that too. 
He offers healing when promises get broken. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus answers this way. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. What are the first three words? Haven't you read? Isn't that interesting? Here's the Son of God, who is God himself, whom others have said, this man teaches with authority, meaning they recognize he's teaching from a place that no one else, none of their prophets, rabbis, teachers of the law, priests, none of them teach from. A, a, a place of authority. And yet, when Jesus is presented with this question, is it lawful for, for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason, where does he go? He does not say, well, I say. And why not? Because he wanted the Pharisees and, and the others in the crowd around them to understand a very important point that you and I need to understand. Vitally important point. And that is, you already have the tools to answer this question. I know, Pharisees, you're coming to me because you want an authoritative answer, but I'm telling you, you could answer this yourself. And you could answer it from a place in the Bible that you are very familiar with, an account that you know like the back of your hand. You could answer it that, that way. So let's, let's look and let's remember. Isn't it interesting that the living word of God, that's what Jesus is called in John chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus called the living word of God. The living word refers to the written word takes the people back to the book of Genesis, to the original blueprint that God had laid out for marriage. You have the tools. And then he lays out four principles for them. Number one, God instituted marriage at the very beginning. Marriage is God's thing. And it's foundational. Now, I, I know that there have been a, there's been a lot of social debate and political debate about what marriage is. But Jesus' response says, really the only one who gets to define marriage from God's point of view is the creator of marriage, who is the creator of you. So let's go back. What does, how does God define it? So number one, God instituted marriage at creation as the foundational unit for his world. There, there were no other units amongst humans at the time Adam and Eve created. God brought Eve to Adam 
immediately once he created her and formed this first unit. So it's foundational unit. From cre- it's a foundational unit. And a right relationship between God, as we talked about last week, this vertical relationship is going to create a right relationship here. Secondly, when Jesus goes back to creation, this is thousands, this is millennia after creation. I I don't know how many thousands of years. No one knows for sure. But for sure we do know this. This is many, 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 many centuries after creation. And Jesus says, what God says in creation is still valid today. What do you think that means for us? If it was still valid 2,000 years ago, many millennia after creation, who are we to argue or to think that definition of marriage is no longer still valid today, that, that we have somehow evolved or, or, or gone beyond this definition of marriage. It is valid for all time. That's principle number two. Principle number three, Jesus says only God has the right to define what marriage is and to regulate it and to terminate it. And then... Finally, here's the definition that Jesus gives of marriage. Look carefully. I'm not adding anything to what Jesus says, but this is what he says. God establishes a marriage when one man and one woman, one man and one woman, both of whom are free to marry in God's eyes, willingly and publicly make a commitment, make known their promises to live together as husband and wife from that time forward as long as they both shall live. Let's look at it again. Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said... For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. So you maybe, if you've been around Christianity a long enough time, know that one of the big parts of marriage is what's known as leave and cleave. It's a nice little rhyme. And Jesus is reiterating this, that a man is to leave his parents and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. The, the verbiage here indicates that they are closely bonded together. I don't know how many of you have ever worked in, in wood. If you're a, a carpenter, a cabinet maker, my first experience with that goes all the way back to seventh and eighth grade at Desert View Elementary School. And I remember our shop teacher telling us that if you take Elmer's glue and you, you glue two pieces of wood together and let it dry thoroughly and then try to break that, it is more likely that the wood will break some other place than at the place that you have bonded it. 
You'll break that board somewhere else, halfway through, uh, but it's not going to break at the bond. This is what Jesus is saying about a marriage bond. It should be so tight that it would break either of the individuals before the marriage bond would break. The two will become that thoroughly united, that thoroughly one. And this happens after a man leaves his father and mother. Not just physically, maybe more importantly, emotionally. I I once heard it illustrated this way, guys, especially for you. Girls, you can take it into account too. Imagine that you're standing on the seashore and there's a, there's a riptide. And your mom is 300 yards over here struggling to get back to shore. And your wife is 300 yards over here in the riptide struggling to get back to shore. You're going to love this question. <laughs> Which one are you going to save? And you can only save one. That's what Jesus is saying when he's saying, leave. Some of you are going, what? But that's what he means. That your closest relationship is now to your wife, even closer than your relationship to your parents. And, and, And wives, the same for you. I mean, if, if it is the first thing that you think of when you get into a fight, get me my cell phone. I'm calling mom. I need some help. I'm not saying that's wrong or sinful in and of itself, but that, if that is your constant go-to, when you have a disagreement with your husband, I, I think at least you ought to step back and ask yourself, have I really left mom and dad? that I can't sort this out with the man I love. Leave and cleave. And so the two are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That Greek word literally evokes an image of two people being yoked together. Remember, Jesus was in a farming community. And people were were very familiar with this image of of two oxen being yoked together to to work to accomplish something in the field. And that's that's what Jesus is saying here, is that there's a purpose behind God bringing us two two together. And, And I want you to notice this. He does not say what you have joined together, let no one separate. What does he say? What does he say? Look at it. Help me. Yeah, what God has joined together. Now, you stand before the altar and you say, I promise, I commit, sickness and health. And so the temptation is to think, I made this marriage. I joined us together. Our our promises are what really matter. And don't get me wrong, those promises are part of the essence of marriage. But Jesus is saying, if we go back to the original blueprint... That blueprint tells us it's God joining you together. Those promises that you make, 
The wedding altar are not simply promises made to each other, they're promises made to God. And who here wants to look to God and say, God, I know I made an oath, I know I made a promise, I know I made a commitment. Sorry, God, I ain't gonna keep it. That's what Jesus is saying. God, in other words, did not design a blueprint for a house of cards. He simply did not design this marriage thing to end unless one of the couple dies. That's it. Now, the Pharisees, I know, I know, you start, now the questions are starting to come, right? But what, what if this, and, and even the Pharisees have that. I'm going to come back and say what I said before. Today, we're not answering all the questions. You know, I think John, as chairman, could answer many of them after the service today if you get done with all <laughs> the questions about the land. Right, John? Okay. But I'm not going to answer them from up here. I preach long enough as it is. Anyway, here the, here's the question. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus answers. And there's a significant shift in the verb here, the action word. Look carefully. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The Pharisees say, Moses told us this is what we should do. He commanded it. And Jesus says, nope. Moses never commanded you to get a divorce. It's clear from, from everywhere uh, where God speaks about this topic that God hates divorce. However, God is a compassionate God. God is an understanding God. And most of all, what God understands is how sinful you are, you people. Meaning me too, of course. He, he understands how hard your hearts are. And because he understands how hard your hearts are, he's, he's made an allowance. He's permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But that's not the blueprint. That's not the way it was designed to be from the beginning. And then Jesus gives only one reason, only one, where God permits divorce. Now, I'm going to address this very briefly. Jesus is addressing Jews and Pharisees who were kind of, you know, beyond, above and beyond. Some estimates say that the divorce rate in amongst the Jews in Jesus' day was astoundingly low when compared to ours. I, I read one figure, for example, that said the estimates are that only 4% of marriages dissolved and ended in divorce in Jesus' day amongst the Jews because they were taught from childhood up how important it was to keep this marriage bond intact and, and hold to the commitment 
Now, whether that number is accurate or not, to be honest with you, I don't know, but many experts would agree the number was low. Jesus says to the Jews, knowing his audience, look, really God only intends for there to be one reason for divorce. Now, I'm going to remember what Jesus did. He said, let's go back to the word. You can answer some of these questions that you have yourself. If you want to answer some of the questions that are popping up in your mind, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and here's why. We're going to write that down, 1 Corinthians 7, because later on, the Holy Spirit inspires the Apostle Paul to address a wider range of issues that may create the dissolution of a marriage that even God would say it's permitted. Now, even that only adds a second reason, really, and that is what we call malicious desertion. The difference is that Jesus was speaking to Jews, Paul was speaking to Greeks, and what, what were the Greeks, the Gentiles' background? They were becoming Christians as adults. They had not growing, grown up knowing about a marriage commitment. They had not grown up with, with these customs. And so immorality, divorce, th there were even different, uh, some have counted four different marriage arrangements amongst the people uh, that Paul was, was talking to. So he, he has to, to talk in other terms. 1 Corinthians 7, I'm not going there today. But Jesus simply says this, the reason God permits any departure from the original blueprint for marriage is hardness of heart. If our marriage has dissolved, number one, we have to take a hard look at ourselves and ask ourselves, in my marriage, was my, was my heart moldable? Was my heart malleable enough? Was my heart soft toward God first and then toward my spouse? Could it have been more so? And we have to also realize that sometimes it's the partner, the other person who didn't have a moldable heart. Some of you are sitting here today and can, can genuinely say, I think I did everything I could possibly do in, in, in human terms, in God's strength, with the Holy Spirit's help, everything I could possibly do to rescue my marriage. But I kept hitting a rock wall. And that rock wall was my spouse's heart. And I... I would say there are some, some of you who are sitting here who, who could rightfully say that. However, my mom from Kentucky used to always remind me of this. It takes two to... Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing that for the vast majority of us, the vast majority, that marriages dissolve mainly because of two people in that marriage that have displayed in some form or fashion hardness of heart. What is hardness of heart? Write this down on the bottom. It is a stubborn refusal to align with God. It just simply means either you have a blind spot like we talked about last week and you're not seeing your stubborn refusal to align with God, you're not getting it, 
Maybe others are pointing it out to you, but you're not agreeing with them. Maybe you know what it is because it's a pretty obvious sin, and even the law written in your heart tells you this is a stubborn refusal to align with God, but you aren't able to get over the hump. Jesus is saying, turn around, repent of it, and come to me for forgiveness and mercy because my grace and forgiveness are always there for you. Turn the page. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. What situation are they talking about? They're talking about this situation. You mean when I marry, there's no back door? You mean when I make this marriage commitment, it's until one of us dies? It's for the rest of our lives? You mean when I get married, there's no way out at all unless one of us commits adultery? Then they said, if that's what you're saying, Jesus, then here's our takeaway. You know what our takeaway is? Don't get married. Don't do it. It's stupid. It's foolish. Put yourself in that situation where, where you're making a commitment not just to another human being, but to God. And God, we know, takes these oaths seriously. Anybody who takes a marriage vow then must be an absolute fool. That's, that's the disciples' takeaway. And you know how Jesus answers it? Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way. So a eunuch is typically a person that uh, has uh, had their sexual organs removed so that they no longer have sexual desire. They were often used in very important uh, positions within uh, king's uh, uh, their, their administration, especially the administration of the harem for obvious reasons, but also in higher, uh, higher places of administration. But when Jesus references this here, as you'll see, he's not just talking about someone who's physically a eunuch. He's talking about someone who may have made a decision to forego a sexual relationship, to forego a marriage for the sake of the kingdom. And so it, it doesn't always reference just simply that 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 physical uh, aspect of it. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Let's break that down. S some people are born naturally, for whatever reason, they don't have that desire to get married, or uh, they don't, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, burn with this desire to have sex. That happens with some people. And, and Jesus says, that's the way they were born. Uh, it's a genetic thing for them. There are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by others. That's the actual physical removal we talked about. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. What does Jesus say when they say, no one should get married? His answer is, it is impossibly difficult to stay married for a lifetime and... It is impossibly difficult for most of you to stay unmarried for a lifetime. 
That's the dilemma. To walk in a way that's aligned with God every day in marriage, (laughs) Jesus just told us, impossible because you're sinful. Thank goodness you're a forgiven sinner and can access that forgiveness every day can go to the cross every day, can get the power of the empty tomb every day, because otherwise it's flat-out impossible. But let's realize this, guys. If you're saying don't get married, that same truth applies to staying single for most of us. There's only a few who are either born that way, chose to become that way physically through surgery, or choose to do it for the sake of the kingdom like the Apostle Paul. So here's what I want you to write down. Here's the promised dilemma. Because of hardness of heart, a lifelong marriage is impossibly difficult, and to remain single is also impossibly difficult. To those of you who are single, what Jesus is also saying, though, especially in that last piece, is that marriage is not your only option. There is an alternative, and that is to live for the kingdom, to be, as we talked about several weeks ago, so kingdom-minded that you willingly forego a marriage relationship so that you can devote more time to the kingdom. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and Paul talks about that very point in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, how that plays out and how people do it. He uses it himself as an example. But he also says there, there aren't many of us that are equipped to do that, really, and stay aligned with the will of God when it comes to, to immorality and sex and all of these things, or just the lifelong companionship of a marriage. We want that. But for those who are capable of it, God says it's honorable, it's beautiful. It's an excellent thing, and all of us should consider it as an alternative if we have not yet married. So, there's this promise dilemma. Have you heard what Jesus has said here? One man, one woman, bonded together for life, This is the commitment that you're making. Only death can separate you. To live in that, you're going to, as a married couple, as a family, need, you need God. And can I just say this? Don't think that God doesn't understand. Maybe several of you, maybe more than that, are saying, well, he's God, he does not get it. But the Jesus who is saying this, who is going back to creation, I want you to remember this. This is the Jesus who was with God in creation, who created it all. This is the Jesus who was with the Father and the Spirit through the the whole Old Testament period and who, quote-unquote, married Israel. And how was Israel as a wife? Do you know that in in, uh, Jeremiah 3.8, it says this? This might shock some of you. This is God talking. This is after centuries of Israel being unfaithful to the Lord and practicing idolatry, which the Lord often calls adultery with other gods. And he says, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce. 
God understands divorce because he's been divorced. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. But it is also clear that in that, when God gave Israel a certificate of divorce, his heart still loved his bride Israel and wanted her back. Seventy years after the exile into Babylon, God brought Israel back. And eventually, the Messiah, Jesus, came as a fulfillment of God's first promise of forgiveness and salvation because they reconciled. This is a God who understands your pain because he's been through your pain. This is the God who says, I hate divorce, but understands it because he has seen and known and experienced the pain of a faithless spouse. And so he says, Jesus now, coming back to him, teaches, for this people's hearts have become callous. They hardly hear with their ears and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their uh, eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. There is hope from this God who understands and loves. Hope exists. Jesus' teaching and healing, write this down, are God's softening agents for every hard heart. Jesus says, hear my words. Come to the Bible. Listen to what I teach. Listen to the law, yes, but more importantly, listen to the gospel, the cross, the empty tomb, the forgiveness, the mercy and the grace, and allow those to soften those hard hearts. Jesus' teaching and healing are God's softening agents for every hard heart, mine too. That's the first part of the solution. Come to Jesus, know that he understands, know that he's compassionate, know that he's forgiving, that he loves you and wants to walk with you wherever you're at, wherever you're at. And then secondly... And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you, restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Now what does that look like? Doesn't mean every marriage is going to be brought back together, but some are. Some are going to be brought back miraculously from places that you sitting here today are thinking, my marriage can never come back from this. But God has the power to heal. And I want you to know that, and I want you to have the hope that it can happen to you. Some of you are going to suffer or already have the breakup of a marriage, like my parents. Some of you as children, like I did, are going to experience it secondhand, and it's going to be painful. Some of you are sitting here hurting, shattered, broken people because of a past divorce. Some of you are not broken and shattered so much as angry, finding it tough, tough, tough to forgive the hurt that has been caused to you. And God says to you, after you've suffered a little while, he will himself restore you and make you strong. What a promise for the broken, 
the frustrated, the angry, those of us who are struggling with forgiveness. That's what it looks like. So write this down. Jesus and his grace are God's strengthening agents for me in the midst of promises kept or promises broken. I want you to take this passage as your hope. The God of all grace will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Guys, if you go home with one thing today, it's this. I cling to the grace of God as the power to strengthen me, to make and keep my promises, particularly my marriage promises, and as the authority to heal me, to forgive me when those promises have been broken. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your gracious promises of love, forgiveness, your presence in my life. Lord, there are times, especially when I go through the, the hurt uh, of things like divorce and broken families that are nothing more than houses of cards that I wonder, Lord, are you really present? Do you really love me? And Lord, once again today, you've shown me that you are present and that you do love me. Help everybody in this room believe that your promises to us are strong, firm, and steadfast, and that they will make us strong, firm, and steadfast if we cling to them. Lord, may our journey every day in repentance to the cross and to the empty tomb lead our hearts to be softened to our own sins against our spouses. Make our hearts moldable like clay instead of hard like rock. Help us to listen to our spouses. Be willing to make the changes that we need to make so that our marriages can get back on track and that we can live out the commitment that we have made. Lord, we need your supernatural power to help us do this. We cannot do it on our own. And Lord, finally, may every person in this room access and know the forgiveness they have for the past sins and broken promises that they, they themselves have, have made and, 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 and those promises they have not kept. Or we ask this in Jesus' name, knowing that he fully and freely does forgive us and love us. Amen. So before we close, if you would like more information about Crosswalk or to listen to other messages, head over to CrosswalkPhoenix.com or come and see us. Services are held at Cesar Chavez High School at 41st Avenue and Baseline on Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. Visit our website for directions. And now, some closing thoughts from Pastor Jeff. I want you to go out with this, with this one secret to keeping the promises that you make. And it's, it's really pretty simple. To keep the promises that you've made, simply start by leaning back into the promises God has made to you. Rest in those promises of forgiveness and grace and mercy. Rest in your new identity, your destiny, your purpose, your possibility, and this community we call church. Rest in those things which we call the gospel. And as you rest in those, as you rest in Jesus, you'll find that the Holy Spirit will strengthen you to make and keep the commitments and the promises that you do. Let me send you out with the, with the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with his favor and give you his peace. Amen.